quick announcement before we get started. I feel like I make a lot of announcements, but this one's pretty important. There are only two things in podcasting that I want to do. Talk to listeners on social media and create content. To ease things up for me on the business side behind the scenes, I have partnered with Himalaya. You may even be listening to me through the Himalaya app right now, and I want to say thank you. Because thanks to this partnership, even just listening to Crime Lines on the Himalaya app helps the show out. More than that, in the next few weeks, I'll be rolling out premium content on Himalaya. Patreon is not going away, but this will allow you to get the benefits I provide on Patreon, including that monthly bonus episode on the Himalaya app. The cost will be the same, but less of your money will go to fees. And it'll also give you the convenience of having that premium content just show up right in the Crime Lines feed. I will have more information on this in the next couple of weeks because there's some exciting things attached to it. But you can download the Himalaya app right now and start building your podcast library there and you'll be ready when everything rolls out. It will definitely be in time for the June bonus episode. Now on with the show. In 1969, a college student was stabbed to death in the library while at least five people stood nearby, but none witnessed the attack. It's been 50 years and one suspect has finally risen to the top of the list of who killed Betsy Ardsma. I'm Charlie and this is Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines, everyone. Just a quick reminder that I'm going to be at the True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th in Chicago. I'll leave a link to tickets in the show notes. It's a great deal to get to meet some of your favorite true crime podcasters. Tonight's case was recommended by Sandy back in the Insight Days Yes, I am still working my way through the old Insight suggestion list, while also maintaining one for Crime Lines. This episode was researched by Haley Gray, so thank you for your help with this one. Betsy Ardsma was born on July 11, 1947 in Holland, Michigan. Her full name was Elizabeth, but she was known by Betsy from the start, and her dad was a tax auditor in Michigan, which is a government job, and her ancestors were a founding family of her hometown of Holland. And I'm sure plenty of you have guessed from both the last name Ardsma and the city name of Holland that we're talking about Dutch settlers. Holland, Michigan is a beautiful and safe place to raise a family. The Ardsma family was involved in the Trinity Reformed Church, which is one of the two major churches in that town. The Reformed Church in America grew from its origins as the North American version of the Dutch Reformed Church. So again, Betsy's life just looks back to her Dutch ancestry. Betsy was number two out of four kids. Her mother had been a teacher before she left the field to stay home and raise the kids. Pretty typical for the 40s and 50s. 
Betsy was really active and caring, so she loved being involved in any number of after-school activities, particularly community service-based projects. She went on a few outreach-slash-missionary-type things for her church. She went to the Navajo Reservation once. She went to Grand Rapids to teach art in the urban core, that sort of thing. She was very driven and intelligent and had plans for more than what Holland, Michigan could hold. After she graduated high school in 1965, she decided she was going to be a doctor, so she had to start in a pre-med program. She first considered the University of Michigan, but instead decided to enter the pre-med program at Hope College, which is a private Christian college in Holland that's affiliated with her church. Both of her parents had gone there. Betsy stayed at Hope for a few semesters, but frankly, she became kind of bored. The rules at the school are like the ones you're going to find at other conservative private colleges like BYU, for example. There was a curfew enforced, things like that. Now, to be completely honest, those were in place at a lot of colleges into the 1960s, including curfews, but they were not as frequently seen or they were not as strictly enforced. And Betsy was just not finding her place at Hope. Along the lines of wanting to help people, she made plans to join the Peace Corps after school. And Hope College wasn't necessarily going to get her there. So between just kind of having outgrown the small college and wanting to go to the Peace Corps after school, she transferred to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in 1967, and the Peace Corps had a presence there on campus. 1967 was an unfortunate year to decide to go to Ann Arbor. Between 1967 and 1969, seven women were killed. Most people link them to a single killer, named John Norman Chapman, also known as John Norman Collins. He was only convicted of one of the murders in 1970. He's called the co-ed killer and Ypsilanti Ripper, if you did want to look up more on these cases. Serial killers, unless they really stand out with some deeper issue, they aren't something I tend to want to deep dive into, But if you do, I think Already Gone has an episode on this guy, so I would check it out there. But Betsy loved the University of Michigan. She changed from pre-med to art and literature. This big shift in majors meant she really had to focus and catch up, and the new degree program was demanding. During her senior year, she started dating a man named David Wright, who was a pre-med major, They both graduated the University of Michigan in 1969, and David was accepted to Penn State's medical program in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Betsy had still planned on the Peace Corps, though, but she changed her mind essentially when David said he wasn't going to hang around waiting for her. While they weren't engaged or anything like that, Betsy did see that they might have a future, so she decided to go ahead and move to Pennsylvania with him for the fall of 1969 semester. 
Well, I mean, she sort of moved with him. They didn't live together. She attended Penn State in an English graduate program with plans to become a college professor. And for those who know about Penn State, you'll know that the medical school is in Hershey and the Penn State campus where Betsy was attending her more liberal arts-based program was in State College. So they actually moved to Pennsylvania together, but still lived about an hour and a half, maybe two hours apart. So there was a lot of writing back and forth between them. Betsy's letters to David didn't seem like anything was out of the ordinary at any point. She never told him about a classmate who creeped her out or that there was someone harassing her or a professor that made her feel uncomfortable. There was none of that. During the early part of that first semester at Penn State, Betsy did go on a few dates with other men, but she really started to get more serious about David in October and early November, so she broke off these casual attachments. On Thanksgiving Day, November 27, 1969, Betsy spent the day and evening in Hershey, Pennsylvania, with David and his friends. But she had a big project coming up, and she was pretty stressed out about it. There were some things she needed to do at her campus, so instead of staying for the rest of the long weekend like David wanted her to, she had him take her to the bus station so she could head back to Penn State. The next day, Friday, November 28th, Betsy left her dorm room in the late afternoon accompanied by her roommate. Item number one on her to-do list was to meet with a professor at 4 p.m. at the Petit Library. When that wrapped up, she went to go see another professor She didn't indicate to either one of them that there was anything wrong. She seemed totally fine. After the second short meeting, she headed to level three of the library to look in the card catalog. For those who may not know, we used to have to go up to this filing cabinet with little drawers and search through them to find a reference card about the book we wanted. It would tell us, where in the stacks we could find that book. Now, I sound like I'm 100 years old breaking this down, but really, I mean, by the time I was in high school, we were using computer searches, but I do remember the card catalog. I remember the Dewey Decimal System and all of that from elementary school. Betsy found the card she was looking for, and she went to the second floor to find the book. Library shelves are often called stacks, and the library here was known collectively as the stacks. According to a Pittsburgh Post-Gazette article, the stacks were described as, quote, a creepy place with low ceilings, dim light, and narrow staircases. I think one of the things that stands out with this murder mystery is the creepy setting just in a narrow library with a low ceiling, the lighting is poor, and that might contribute to how little the witnesses saw. And what happened next, we have to piece together by the accounts of the witnesses. At 4.45 or so, 
a student named Shirley Brooks went up to level two. She asked Betsy to borrow a pen. Betsy gave her the pen. Shirley used it and then brought it back. A few minutes after Shirley walked away from Betsy, leaving her alone in the stacks, a man named Richard Allen was using the copy machine nearby, and he heard a man and a woman having what sounded to him like a very normal conversation. No one was yelling. There weren't any tense tones or raised voices or anything like that. Just conversation, just chatter. Then he heard books falling and what he described as, quote, a metallic clanging noise. He looked up to see a man running from aisle 51. As the man ran toward the front desk, he yelled, that girl needs help, but kept running away from aisle 51. Now, another man at the library who witnessed this ran after that man, thinking they were going for help, and he was going to go with him to find help, but the man outran him and he lost him along the way. So the woman at the front desk named Marilee ran to aisle 51 and saw Betsy on the ground with books kind of fallen around her. It looked to her like Betsy had fainted, had passed out. So Marilee tried to wake her up, but it didn't work. An ambulance was called and the paramedics came to the library under the impression that a woman had fainted or possibly had a seizure. When they were unsuccessful in reviving Betsy, they put her on a gurney and took her to the campus health center. Betsy wasn't breathing and CPR was started. The chest compressions are what made them notice that there was blood coming from Betsy's chest. They couldn't resuscitate her, and so she was declared dead. Having gone from believing they were responding to a woman who fainted, to seeing the blood, to her passing away, was just a shock to the paramedics. This all happened in such a short amount of time, really from the borrowing of the pen to Betsy being declared dead was a about 30 minutes. And the truth is, she likely died within minutes of the stab wound, and there wouldn't have been anything they could have done. After she was declared dead, and they had noticed the blood on the chest, a doctor lifted her dress and saw a stab wound on the left side of her chest. The lack of blood coming from the wound was really surprising. But they knew that she had been stabbed, and this was a homicide. The state police were called in. There are essentially two causes for why they missed what was very obviously the cause of her medical emergency. The first is that it really didn't bleed much externally. The way she was stabbed and how she fell meant that the bleeding was internal. It pooled in her lungs. And the little bit of external bleeding that did happen was masked by the red knit dress that she was wearing. Also, it was a stretchy material. It was a knit material. So they didn't see even the tear in the fabric. 
But because this was assumed to be a woman having a natural medical emergency, like a seizure, the scene at the library, aisle 51, was not secured. It appeared that as Betsy fell, she grabbed at the bookshelves, so there were a bunch of books on the floor. There was also what appeared to be a small puddle of urine on the floor, likely Betsy's. So the library staff, thinking that Betsy had had a seizure, called in the janitor to clean up the area, including mopping where she fell. So when the state police arrived at the scene, they watched in horror as people were just walking right across their crime scene and had been for that whole evening. Based on the autopsy, the medical examiner assessed that the killer knew what he was doing because this was a single fatal stab to the heart. This wasn't a frenzied attack, but a quick one, a direct one, and a very accurate one. And there were a few more things considered in building a profile of the killer. The wound was three inches deep and right into Betsy's heart. This would have taken some strength to get through all that tissue, muscle, bone. So the person who killed her was probably a pretty strong person. Betsy also had no defensive wounds, which goes to how quick this all happened. The attack came when she was not expecting it. She didn't get a good look at that knife before the stabbing. Since a witness had heard people talking calmly before the attack, it's believed that the person was known to Betsy. This was someone she would have been comfortable talking to in those dark, narrow aisles. I have seen some wonder if the lack of defensive wounds is because the person reached around her and stabbed her while reaching from behind. And personally, I would need to see some evidence that that would have even been possible. Betsy was not a large person, but she wasn't tiny. She was 5'8". So to be big enough to reach around her with a knife that had a four-inch blade, get enough leverage to plunge it into her heart, and to do it very swiftly. Because I imagine she would have instinctively pushed out her arms if she felt someone reach around. So this person would have had to act very quickly to make this happen, having enough leverage and force to get it through her chest wall. And I'm just not sold that this attack came from behind. But one of the things that really struck me about this case is the time frame. She was only in Pennsylvania for a few months. She had actually left a university where there was a serial killer and she left there safely, but she was in Pennsylvania for a few months and was killed likely by someone who knew her, and there weren't that many people she knew yet. And like I said before, she was only in the library for about 30 minutes when this all happened. So if this was someone known 
to Betsy, as investigators have believed and still believe, as far as I know, did this man stalk her there with the knife in hand? How premeditated was this? I can't imagine a scenario where he walked in, just happened to have a knife, had a perfectly pleasant conversation with her, and then decided spur the moment to attack. It sounds like this was premeditated and she was being followed. If it was a random attack, you do have to wonder why Betsy, why there? And those are just questions we're never going to answer. So for investigators, the crime scene is a wash, literally washed away. So the first step was to track down any witnesses. All of the witnesses had been allowed to leave the library without giving their names because, again, this was just a medical emergency at that point. Obviously, police couldn't just interview everyone on campus or hope word got out for people to come forward or to trust people to come forward. So based on who checked out materials, who signed up for the copier, those kind of records that were kept, they were able to narrow down to 400 people who came or went in that 4.30 to 5.15 time frame. And they're pretty lucky that it was a holiday weekend because classes were not in session or the number would probably have been higher. Most of the people at the library heard and saw nothing. A few simply heard some of the commotion. Either they heard the books falling or they saw the paramedics arrive, but they didn't see Betsy. They didn't see a stabbing. They didn't see a man running away. There are a few reports out there that you will see that say that some people heard a scream, but this is not true. No one heard a scream, and on autopsy, it was determined that Betsy couldn't have screamed. Her lungs had immediately filled up with blood. Eventually, police did track down those who saw the man and rendered aid to Betsy. So these are our key witnesses here. Using the descriptions They made multiple sketches of the man and eventually had one official composite sketch. But we have to remember that this man ran by them. So it's hard to say how good of a look they got at him and how much they really remembered about him. But he was described as wearing khaki slacks, shirt tie, the shirt was a plaid button down. He had a sports jacket on. He had glasses, but it also said he had boat style sneakers on and well-kept brown hair. I don't know how much of that detail you could get as someone is running by yelling something at you. I mean, some reports say he walked past the desk, so maybe someone got a better look at him also said he was around six feet tall and 185 pounds. So again, that would be a good size for reaching around Betsy, like I had said, but I'm still not convinced that's how this happened. 
The next people they needed to talk to were the people who were close to Betsy, even if they weren't witnesses. So they went to her roommate. And she told police that she hadn't heard or seen anything unusual in the days leading up to this attack. There was nothing in Betsy's life that stood out from a victimology point of view. She was well-liked. She was a good student. She came and went normal hours. She didn't engage in anything that would be considered risky behavior. The roommate did tell the police about her boyfriend, David, though. And so they went ahead and interviewed David. They drove out to Hershey, Pennsylvania. He had an alibi. They checked it. There were witnesses. And by all reports, he was devastated. So everything just checked out. David was far away from where this happened, and he was eliminated pretty quickly as a suspect. Hundreds of interviews, a massive search of the campus, it all turned up nothing. The murder weapon was never found, and a prime suspect never rose to the surface. They tried polygraphs and hypnosis with some of the witnesses, but nothing of investigative value came from any of it. Penn State offered a $25,000 reward for information leading to an arrest, which would be over $150,000 in today's money. But when it went unclaimed by 1972, the reward expired. The case grew cold in spite of investigators' best efforts. Then in February of 1977, so we're talking seven years, just over seven years since the murder, Sergeant George Keebler of the Pennsylvania State Police received a letter. There was no return address, but it was postmarked from Atlanta, Georgia, which is about a 12-hour drive from the murder scene, so not terribly close. The letter had curse words in it, and this show is relatively clean in language, so I've edited it for you. The letter said, quote, You never did catch the guy who killed the in the library back in 7071, did you? Well, F you all. Here's a present for Washington's birthday you'll never forget. They dusted the letter for Prince, but nothing came of that. They never could determine who sent the letter or why it was sent. But in my view, it was likely a taunt from someone other than the killer. Most killers know exactly when they killed someone. This writer gave two years as the possible murder year, and both of them were wrong. The library went ahead and made some changes after Betsy's death, such as renumbering the aisles. They also added lighting, and they removed some of the bookshelves, so now it's not quite so narrow or dark. On the 25th anniversary of her death in 1994, someone left a candle burning in the area where the original aisle 51 was. Next to the candle on the floor, there was a message written in red marker, so it's written on the floor, not on a piece of paper, and it read, R.I.P. Betsy Ardsma, 
born July 11, 1947, died November 28, 1969. I'm back. There were news stories of her murder scattered in the aisle, but I'm not talking about current news articles like ones from her 25th anniversary coming up. These clippings were from 1969, so they were 25 years old. A similar shrine showed up in 1999 in a different part of the library, and I'm not 100% sure how similar it was. It just is referred to as similar. Police declared both of these to be pranks, but the first one did catch my interest because someone took some risk putting it there, taking the time to write on the ground, but also some effort of having those original articles. There are a number of names that have come forward over the years as potential suspects. And as always, there are the usual big names that get pulled in. Uh, Ted Bundy and even the Unabomber. Ted Bundy was in Pennsylvania in 1969. He attended Temple University for a semester, which is about three hours away from Penn State. But he attended during the spring semester. He was back west by the time Betsy was killed. This is the time frame where he met his girlfriend, Liz. So he was in Utah at this point. Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, was living in Illinois at the time, and this just doesn't match his MO. I've seen the alphabet killer come up, but we're a couple years too early, a few hours too far south, and Betsy was a decade too old for the alphabet killer's usual victim. Investigators looked into the possibility that Betsy was basically a narc, some type of informant. People point to her father's government job as maybe proof of this, though he was an auditor, which isn't necessarily, you know, looking at crime of the century stuff or crimes that a college student could get inside information on. But they checked with local police. They even checked with the FBI. There was no evidence of this. There was no evidence that she was working as an informant, which would have certainly put a target on her back if anyone found out. But it doesn't seem like there's any basis to this. Another idea that's come out, specifically in the book, Who Killed Betsy?, was that she interrupted two men having sex. Apparently, the dark stacks was somewhere that hookups did happen. And in 1969, these men could have been permanently professionally harmed if they were outed. I don't think this theory really fits, though. Would two men having sex in a public place have a knife at the ready? The witness also heard a calm discussion, and I don't think this can be emphasized too much. There was not an audible argument preceding this. And then, of course, there was only one man who fled the scene, not two. So I don't really buy this as plausible, but since it has come up in a book and not just an internet message board, I thought it was worth at least addressing. Another rumor that investigators looked into pretty early on was that Betsy was a nude model in the art department. And that opened up the circle of people she knew to a whole new group. 
Her friends said she wouldn't have been a nude model. She was pretty modest in that way, wouldn't have been comfortable doing it. But while detectives were putting that rumor to rest just with a quick trip to the art department to talk to the students, it did lead them to another person of interest. Bill Spencer was 41, and he lived outside of State College with his wife. He was a sculptor. He regularly spent time with the art students. So he heard about the investigation because the art students had just been questioned. He called the police and told them that he had actually solved the crime. Of course, they go out to interview him, and he said he saw someone jogging away from the library on the day of the murder, and he was sure that this person was the murderer. So he told them that he was going to sculpt a bust of the man he saw, and he did. He presented this to the police. Now, his own wife pretty much told the police to disregard him. He didn't see anything. But because he was seemingly inserting himself into this investigation, they had to look into him, but eventually decided his wife was correct. He didn't have anything to do with it as a witness or as a suspect. The most compelling name to come forward, in my view, is that of Richard Hafner. And what interested me most about this name is that two authors investigating the case for their true crime books both came to the same conclusion that Richard was involved. Some people say he's the spitting image of the composite sketch of the man. Others even say he's the spitting image of the Zodiac. I mean, I'm impressed that people see anything in a composite sketch. My brain just does not work that way. I'm just not someone who can evaluate sketches against people. The two authors who've looked at him as the most likely killer are Derek Sherwood and David DeCock. Now let's talk about who Richard was. He was a graduate student in geology. He was a few years older than Betsy. He was about to turn 26 and she was 22. He and Betsy casually dated in that early part of the semester, but she ended things with Richard when she realized that things with David were moving forward more seriously. They hadn't gone on a date in over a month at the time of her murder. When Richard was an undergraduate in his hometown of Lancaster, which is also in Pennsylvania, he was accused of trying to quote-unquote touch some boys who went to the museum where he worked. He often worked with Boy Scouts on their geology merit badges, so he had a lot of access to these boys The museum asked him to leave his position after these accusations came forward. He did deny them, but he did also leave the museum. After finishing his bachelor's degree, he enrolled in Penn State's geology graduate program, where he earned his master's, and he went on to get his Ph.D. after Betsy's death. According to those who knew him, he didn't seem to date anyone at all, pretty much ever, until he met Betsy one night outside of their dorm hall. He went up to her and struck up a conversation. And in October, they went on a few dates. Police did interview him at the time because he was connected to Betsy. 
They described Richard as, quote, overly prepared for the interview. He knew exact times. He knew exact dates for everything. He had an answer just at the ready. He told police he never went to the Petit Library, which was where Betsy was, because the geology materials that he needed were housed at a separate library on campus. He gave an alibi of being two hours away in his home in Lancaster at the time of the murder. And then there's reports that he was at the dining hall when he first heard of what happened. Richard was questioned and released. They brought him back in again in 1970, but again questioned and released. So let's talk about what the authors found years later in these independent reinvestigations. And remember, they didn't work together on a single book. These are two people working separately from each other who came to the same conclusion. Derek Sherwood talked to an employee of Richard's father. His father owned a rock shop, which was part of what drove Richard towards geology. According to this employee, Richard's mother admitted that she lied to police when she told them that Richard was home at the time of the murder. He was not. She said he was actually at the college. Then we have the statement of Professor Lauren Wright. Professor Wright was at his home when Richard ran over, knocked on his door, about 45 minutes after Betsy was killed. He said that Richard seemed kind of excited and said, did you hear that my ex-girlfriend was murdered? He seemed excited, not in the upset, excitable, or agitated, but like actually excited. And that bothered the professor who did speak to the police later on. But this does show us that Richard was very likely on campus at the time of the murder. It's possible he arrived back immediately after the murder and then heard about it when it spread through campus and then ran to his professor's house. But I think the most likely explanation is he was on campus. Both authors also identified what looked like an unhealthy view of women. They found out that Richard's mother believed that her son was gay and put incredible pressure on him to not be gay, to overcome it, which is giving me a huge eye roll just saying that. He may have dated Betsy as part of this grand plan, but instead of making him love women, he seemed to build an anger against them and maybe even a little bit of an obsession when he's rejected. There's some pretty deep psychology at play with this man. So an example not associated with Betsy, Richard was interested in a woman named Mary, and she went to school at Brown University, and she was home visiting on a break when Richard became infatuated with her. And she actually resembled Betsy in some way. She was tall. She had long, dark hair. She was a college student about the same age. She had no interest in Richard. He kind of creeped her out. So she avoided him 
as much as she could. And then at the end of the visit, she went back to Brown University, again, 800 miles away. Instead of letting this go, mind you, they they haven't even gone on a single date. Richard traveled those 800 miles and showed up on her doorstep professing his love. She had to threaten to call the cops to get him to leave. He did leave at this threat, but traveling that far after she had already turned him down is not normal and it's not healthy. Years and years later, in 1998, Richard got in a shouting match with a woman that escalated into him beating her. He dislocated her jaw and loosened some of her teeth. And these are just two examples. The authors also found out that the accusations against Richard for molesting children in his undergraduate days were far from the only accusations. After finishing his PhD program, Richard took a job teaching at SUNY in New Paltz, New York. After one year, they did not renew his contract, so then he moved to the University of Charleston in South Carolina. Again, he only lasted a year. So he moved back home with his parents, and he was working in his dad's rock shop when he was arrested in August of 1975. Two of the neighborhood boys who worked in the shop with him had accused him of molesting them. He was arrested, but was given bail after he passed a polygraph test. There is some speculation that he passed the lie detector because he didn't believe there was anything wrong with what he had done and that the questions just weren't specific enough, not he passed it because he didn't do it. While he was out on bail, Richard hired a few of the older boys in the neighborhood to secretly record themselves questioning one of the boys about why he was making the accusations. The purpose, it seems, was to intimidate this boy into recanting on tape. We don't know if this worked or not because these illegal recordings went missing. And then eventually this molestation trial ended in a hung jury. According to one of the jury members, it was an 11 to 12 vote in favor of guilt. There was just one juror that was not convinced and was a holdout. They opted not to retry Richard, and he eventually had his record expunged. But these charges, even without a conviction, were enough to keep Richard from getting respectable jobs in his field. Though I don't think we can entirely discount that he had two failed university posts. That likely also contributed to not being able to find work. So Richard pretty much just stayed at his parents' house working in the shop for the rest of his life. Derek Sherwood, who was the author of Who Killed Betsy, wanted to get the other side of the story, find people who knew Richard who might give his defense, basically. Tracking down friends was difficult since Richard had very few friends. And by the time Derek was asking around, Many of Richard's relatives had died. Richard himself died in March 2002 from a tear in his aorta. Those Derek could find 
weren't interested in talking except for Richard's nephew, Chris, who did reply. He worked in his grandfather's rock shop alongside Richard. Chris said that he was in the shop after Richard had been arrested in 1975 on those molestation charges. He even knew the boys involved, having worked side-by-side with them. Their job was basically to break up big pieces of minerals and rocks and then repackage them for gift shops to sell. One day when Chris was in the shop, his grandmother came in, but she didn't see him there. She only saw Richard. And so she thought Richard was alone and started yelling at him about getting in trouble again after all she had done to get him out of trouble in the past. And according to Chris, his grandmother said to Richard, you killed that girl and now you're killing me. Later, she asked Richard sarcastically, are you going to kill me too? Chris also said that he helped clean out Richard's house after his death and that what he found was frightening. He wouldn't give details, but he said he found enough information to implicate Richard. He said Richard's demons weren't his fault, he was born that way, and he doesn't want to publicize what he found because he wants Richard to be able to find forgiveness in some form. So this case may be solved, but it's also not solved. It's definitely not officially solved. Police are very interested in hearing more, but Unless what Chris found was a handwritten confession or the murder weapon, my guess is it's circumstantial. And it's unlikely the police will close out the case based on this. There is always hope in cold cases that modern forensics can come in and help, but we don't have that option here. There is no DNA to test. If there was any small amount of blood on the floor from the killer, it was cleaned up before police got there. And with as quickly as this attack happened, it's very possible the killer never touched Betsy, just plunging that knife into her heart and then running off with it. So there wouldn't even be transfer DNA on any of Betsy's remains or clothes that could be exhumed and tested. With nothing to test, it's possible that Penn State's most famous murder, which has remained unsolved for 50 years, will remain so forever. Okay, before I go, I posted on Twitter this week that My five-year-old was home while I was trying to work, kind of have a week gap between the end of school and the start of his summer program. And so while I was recording this episode, he interrupted me to ask for lunch. I made a comment on 
social media, just a joke about how I'm just going to go ahead and leave it in. And people said they actually wanted to hear it. So instead of leaving it in and interrupting a very serious case with this lighthearted work-at-home moment that I'm sure some of my listeners can identify with, I decided to just add it to the end. So here is me and what life is like in my house when I'm trying to work. Even without a conviction, we're enough to keep him... No, buddy, I'm working. I'll make you food as soon as I come up, okay? I'm almost done. Okay. Can you leave so I can finish? You look at another. I love snuggles. You look at another.